Yeah, I think it's important to you know understand like what is money, right? Like, mm -hmm. what is it? Right? I agree. <laughs> uh, so money in itself then is like a language. That is money. That's how money emerges in the marketplace. It is not a government creation, it has nothing to do with government other than the fact that they monopolize it and try to control it to control people. You know, asking that question of what is money and understanding, you know, what what's the role of the central banks and the Fed and all these things you start to realize, you're like, wait a sec, this makes way more sense than what we've been told. And why aren't we told this stuff in school? Mm -hmm. My poor little daughter is crying up there right now uh, <laughs> because she's paying the debt uh, that the uh, government is amassing with all of this spending. But they literally, Robert, it's, it's amazing. They literally don't even consider where money comes from. They act as though it is just theirs. So they always had like money men around. So I was trying to show how like there's always a money man around. <laughs> okay. Like. In a kingdom, when it was a monarchy, the money man was running the show. It's the pathway that man becomes corrupt, mm -hmm. certainly money. After you read history and if you see what's happening, you know, you will you will start thinking like, why do I hold fiat money? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. It's control authority is fair and preserved through the brutality, the brutal meritocracy that is nature and power projection. 99.99% of humans have no idea what money is, in my estimation. If Ray Dalio doesn't know what money is, I'm going to say that disqualifies like 99.99% of everyone else. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the world's first startup accelerator program focused exclusively on the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what is possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to Wolf. 
wolfnyc.com today to apply for the program or learn more. Again, that is wolfnyc.com. You know, asking that question of what is money and understanding economics better and the the political game and how we got here and you know what what's the role of the central banks and the fed and you know what is fiat and and and, and so all these things you start to realize you're like wait a sec this makes way more sense than what we've been told and why aren't we told this stuff in school mm -hmm. and and why aren't we told why aren't we really on a, on a deeper level um you know, talking about financial responsibility in school. Like we're learning about all this other stuff, but like we're not learning about really how to save money and how to do this and how to do that. It's just like get a job and spend and get a job and spend. And um, it, it's, you realize it, it, the other thing that's, that's, that was major. And, and I understood this in other ways, but I just, the things that we think we know, we don't know. And mm -hmm. There's very few experts out there, Robert. Mm. Like even, you know, when I, when I, I'm in my field and I hear, see a journalist write about something or I hear another expert in the field talk about something like that's not how it is. That's, that's right. not how, that's not how right. jujitsu works or how fighting works. So that's not the thing, man, like go deeper. And I, I think it gets you to realize there's very few experts. What we're told is not the truth. And it's yeah. on us to go out there and search for it and make an honest effort at doing so. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's going to bring a much more truthful world, a, a much more beautiful world, and one that kind of puts everyone at ease. And I think a lot of people for many, many years, probably over the last hundred years, have been working their asses off and not understanding you know, where this anxiety is coming from, right. despite having a secure job and right. the house with the white picket fence and still understand, like still not understanding, like why the hell do I feel like I'm caught in this rat race? And we've yeah. all been there, but I feel like Bitcoin has taken that away from me. And it's like, what's the value of that? Yeah, man. Excellent. Excellently said. And I couldn't agree more. I went through the fiat rat maze and even having some success, you know, quote unquote success, right. I was not feeling better about life. I was feeling worse. I was like deeper in the totally. darkness, less meaning. It was just, I was lost. And yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I'm exploring that a lot. Like, what is it about fiat world? And I, you know, I don't, if it's like, we have this live, this embodied lie in the money, it's like the money is not what it represents itself to be. It's supposed to be time or energy. Well, it's not because it's constantly being debased. Yeah. So does that infect us? Like, are we we're using a bad tool so it makes us bad? I'm not sure, but something about moving away from that and just denominating your life in Bitcoin and and following the rabbit holes that it leads you down, you know, philosophically, intellectually, it it just it enriches your life so much. Absolutely. I think there's so much mystery in the fiat world of like, you know, how things work. And it's, there's, there's just certain sleaziness and mm -hmm. uh, you just don't feel good about the, the methods that are, that are used in a lot of ways. And it's like, you, you start to kind of like think that that's the way and like, well, mm -hmm. it, it must be normal. So I guess mm -hmm. like, I don't just to lie and cheat and steal like this guy's doing it and this right. guy's doing it and right. this is all my bosses are doing like might as well like mm, all right well <laughs> um i almost feel like 
Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network is like this Bitcoin realm. It's this Bitcoin world that you pass into eventually. Um, and it's like these guys are doing their stuff, like the fiat people are doing this fiat stuff and the Bitcoin people are doing this whole <laughs> Bitcoin thing. And it maybe this isn't fully developed yet, but it, it's getting there. And it's yeah. like it's a lot brighter and it's clearer and it's yeah. not fuzzy. And it's it's this um, it's a clearer communication uh, across all yes. aspects, I feel like. I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. It's clarifying just in general in so many ways but it's it's we sound crazy almost outsiders you have to like live through it yeah but it it's reassuring to me to see it happening in the lives of others like it's not just me going through this personal transformation because i'm interacting with magic internet money like there's other people experiencing this thing too so right um it's a real rabbit hole and i don't think anyone knows we're calling it money we're calling it technology you know, you could even call it a social institution in some ways, but none of the terms we have quite capture it, you know, which also lends me to believe it's something so big. Like we don't have the, the language for it, really. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, um, geez, I, I think Sailor, you know, kind of uh, distilled it beautifully. And, and I know you, you've had many hours with him um, that has enlightened me, but like, it's energy. Like everything uh -huh. is energy. Uh -huh. Jiu-jitsu is, is the mastering of energy and, and those who control the energy and those who can retain the energy um, are, are going to be better off because of it. And I think that we're seeing that with Bitcoin. And, and there is this direct correlation to that, that ability to retain it, that ability to protect it, that ability to preserve it. And we had never, we haven't had anything like that. Like right. you don't have to give your energy to some other person who's going to, you know, squeeze you of it while they're right. using it yeah. and you yeah. don't have access to it. It's not really yours. And this is the first time that we're able to do that separate from the state. And mm. again, it, it's, it's just, it's absolutely mind blowing. Um, first of all, that we never had this before, but that it's actually been created and executed um, on quite a beautiful level and on a deep level and, and just uh, in time it, it seems like yeah right like well yeah. exactly it's like this <laughs> someone knew what was going on you know uh like if bitcoin were not a thing really if it were not at least where it is today because if it were just launched it would you know we wouldn't know about it but the fact that it's reaching I guess you'd call it adolescence right now when the world need mm. seems to need it a lot like the world needs a light to move towards because it's a lot totally. of dark shit going on out there. Totally. Um, and it's, yeah, what you, what you said, it's like, it's inspired you to do all these things is the, um, to go down these rabbit holes, like to work, frankly, like that's the big thing I've noticed is in fiat world. Like I had to force myself to work. Like I didn't, the sleaziness you described, I felt the sleaziness, you know, there's all these like political games being played. You have to navigate this messy kind of arena. And it's just like, oh, I have to force myself to do it because what else do you do in the world? I, I don't know. Yeah. But in yeah. Bitcoin, it's the exact opposite. It's like you're inspired to work. Like I wake up just alive and electric every day to get into this. Absolutely. Like, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? That That's the thing. It's like, 
we are talking about it like it's this unusual thing but like right. that's what we're supposed to be doing and and there's no there's no better feeling when you're like you know what my my money is secure and my money is mine and i've worked mm. hard for that and it feels good and and there's accountability and there's understanding you know um and, and then I can now focus on the things that I love, the things that I'm passionate about, yeah. um, and, and try to make that pot a little bit bigger. And mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and you know, like to put a button on it with what you said, it's all energy, right? Everything. And this is not we're not like you know spiritual babble here. E equals mc squared. Mass is frozen energy. Everything in the universe right. is energy. It's energy on right. a tapestry of space and time. It's ridiculous that humans did not have a place to store their energy that other humans could not fuck with up until this point. Right. So like it's this whole that old phrase of power to the people. It's like Bitcoin's literally giving power to the people. So like you can actually hold your <laughs> yeah. life's work and energy in something that no one else can mess with. And I love this question, by the way. What is money? Right. This is the name of the show. And this is the I think the key to incepting these ideas into people or at least getting people to question their socioeconomic reality such that they can peel back the layers of this onion and see through some of these euphemisms and i would say even the dollar itself you don't want dollars per se you don't want a definite amount of dollars you want purchasing power but i don't realize it you're right yes but i don't realize it that's right you've been pursuing dollars your whole life what you're actually pursuing is what those dollars can get you that's what money is right money is the most exchangeable good, you can think of it as a call option on anything the market can produce. So any good, any service, any knowledge, human time, anything people can do, any service anyone can render for you, money is a call option on that. And that's why it's the most valuable or apex good in a marketplace. So when we look at money, the five properties that market actors voluntarily favor, you could also think of as the five services we seek from money are divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, scarcity. So I'll walk through each one of these. Money needs to be divisible. Pretty obvious. You want to transact at different scales. You want to buy coffee in the same day that you go and buy a house, right? So you'd like to be able to give someone a coin or send someone a wire for 10 million bucks to buy a house. Pretty obvious. Um, money needs to be durable in that it's not going to corrode over time. If you put a bunch of gold in a safe, it's not going to decompose, right? The half-life on gold is way longer than uh, matters to any of us. If you put a bunch of oranges in the safe and you were using that as money, that's going to rot pretty quickly. So clearly durability matters. Money needs to be recognizable, which means that each trading party can verify its authenticity. So at every transaction, and I'm handing you dollars, you can certify either with that little pin they mark on dollars to make sure it's uh, a legitimate, you know, U.S. Federal Reserve issued dollar. Or if it was gold back in the day, they had different techniques for assaying uh, the gold's authenticity, making sure it wasn't lead plated with gold. Uh, in fact, the name sound money, which you've probably heard in, in your explorations of the rabbit hole, that referred to the sound a gold coin made when dropped a certain way. So you could verify its authenticity by the sound it would create. Um, and this is another reason we introduced coinage and currency, because 
to verify money at every transaction is a very significant transaction cost. Transaction costs are dissipative to trade, right? If we want to increase trade and increase wealth, we want to reduce transaction costs. So by abstracting into currency or putting it in a warehouse and trusting the warehouse custodian, we can now trade much more quickly and more efficiently. So that, I mean, that's that's one aspect of money that coinage and currency helped was recognizability. Money also needs to be portable. Pretty obvious. You want to be able to move it across space, right? If I'm buying something in another city, I need to get my gold or dollars to the other city to give it to the recipient. Finally, and most importantly, money has to be scarce. And now we typically think scarce is purely a supply side function. That's not what scarcity means. Scarcity occurs when demand outstrips supply. So when there is more appetite for the thing, then there is a supply of the thing. Okay, so oxygen, pretty important for human life. There's no price on it. Why? Not scarce. It's not scarce. The supply way outstrips the demand, right? Um, something like diamonds, not that important to human existence, yet it has a huge price because the demand way outstrips the supply. The unique thing about scarcity and money is that money is always scarce because it's a call option on everything, all the capital, all the savings humans can produce. The heart of man is never satisfied. We always want more. Therefore, money is always scarce by definition. So what market actors tend to favor is the money that has the most inelastic supply. So this means the supply that is least subject to change uh, by the willpower of others. That is what market actors will zero in on. And here, there's another a number of ways to think about this. Um, time, energy, second law of thermodynamics. We cannot create nor destroy energy, right? We're sacrificing time and energy to earn money. You would naturally want the thing you're sacrificing this absolutely scarce time and energy for to be similarly absolutely scarce. That would be the ideal money, right? Something that can't be created or destroyed. Um, with money, to gloss over a little bit of history, monetary metals, best satisfied, divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability. Those are just, and we've tried a lot of experiments. We've had seashells, we've had glass beads, we've had cattle, we've, we've used all kinds of things as money, right? Natural market processes determined that monetary metals were the most satisfactory across the first four properties or services that money can render to us. Of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce, meaning specifically its supply was the least vulnerable to change. No matter how much effort, time, energy we poured into producing gold, its supply increased the slowest and the most predictably. So this gave us a medium into which we could store economic value and we would know with relative certainty that it would only change by about 2% year over year. So this gave gold the store value function we traditionally associate with it. Um, that's great, right? Gold is great. Gold is good money. It's been good money, 5,000 years, uh, served a lot of purposes, but the big hangup with gold is lack of portability. 
right? We talked about this a little bit earlier. You want to be able to move it across space, obviously, but gold's heavy. It's physical, right? It's very expensive to secure. Um, it actually, in one way, it's beneficial and that you can store a lot of economic value in a small area and sort of uh, amortize the security costs around it. But when you need to move it, that's when there's a lot of risk involved. And this was the impetus for introducing what you alluded to earlier were the warehousing businesses. So a private enterprise, a free market function came to be where a warehouse would take custody of the gold, give you the warehouse receipt. You can go and transact it. It's as good as gold, right? You have a call option on gold effectively. This was introduced to augment the portability of gold. Well, those warehouses became banks. Those banks became central banks. And this is all, again, I'm not laying out a nefarious scheme here. This is the economics, the economies of scale associated with gold. It is more efficient to centralize custody of this heavy bulky metal and issue abstractions in it. It's more efficient to transact in that model than it is with physical gold. So that's what drives this process. The problem is you now have to trust the custodian. You've introduced what we call counterparty risk. There's a counterparty to that trade. I can trade this paper with everyone and it's as good as gold until I go to redeem the gold from the warehouse and there's the gold's not there or they won't redeem it or a fraction of what this paper represents is available. You know, when you get your, if, if you're salaried and you get paid, um, there's sort of an Im implication there that what you get, you got paid for the work that you did. You know, it's very, mm -hmm. there's sort of one-to-one, -one, there's a feeling there's some kind of one-to-one -one correspondence. Mm -hmm. I mean, originally it was, you know, if you dug ditches, it really was the work that you did. Mm -hmm. Then it became a little more abstract that if you're a manager, well, you're doing a different kind of work. But still there was this image, uh, this idea that, mm -hmm. you know, in many of our minds actually, that it's tied to, you know, work, production and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, but then of course, it, it, it's gone way, big. it gets much beyond that, where now money, even before, as I say, Bitcoin, it starts to become quite abstract in terms of once you have ideas of investment. For example, um, Warren Buffett's one of the richest men in the world, but in terms of the old, the old ideas about work, you know, he, he's never done a, work, a day's work in his life. I mean, in that sense, mm -hmm. so the Marx, you know, the Marxist view of money mm -hmm. as labor kind mm -hmm. of thing, which is very 19th century, um, and uh, not recognizing the role of investment as work and as part of the I don't know, lubrication mm -hmm. of, 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 of a capitalist economy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and now we've gone one step beyond that, it seems to me, that it's now not tied to any of those things. It's sort of of itself. And indeed, it is information because it's stored in this in some in some digital form. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what it is. It's not, you know, and uh, and yet it obviously is still related because presumably if you have cryptocurrency, you can as an exchange rate, I mean, mm -hmm. whatever it is, that seems to fluctuate enormously. <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that, that relates it back to what many of us think of as a dollar bill kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm still struggling. Frankly, I'm still struggling with that is to try to see what it is and what its implications are. And, well, I, don't really, I, don't, and I confess, I do not understand it. <laughs> well, your, your intuition is spot on that gold was, you know, we often say this dollar, you know, people say, oh, a currency backed by gold. The question yes. really is what's backing the gold? And that was yeah, energy, frankly, you know, it was, yeah. oh, it was, um, you know, no matter how you expended your energy in the world, if you couldn't find something more profitable, frankly, you were either employed in something more profitable than gold mining, or you were mining gold. Gold was like yeah. kind of the backstop to energy expenditure, something like that. But that energy expenditure is exactly what secured its supply. That's what made it a good store of value. But when you then decouple that and you just give the authority to issue money to a government with no energy expenditure, you get, well, clearly it's a very perverse incentive because now there's one group of people that can just confiscate the energy of others by printing money effectively. And that's what's happening right now. You know, it's, it's rampant. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance, you got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. You really made a splash in the Bitcoin Twitter universe when you went on a rant about what is money <laughs> on the floor right. of parliament. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, listen, uh, and, and it was funny because it was around that time I think you were reaching out and then I realized your show is actually called What is Money? I'd watched another show of yours, but, um, uh, you know, basically the speech um, said a lot of the same things that you're saying, which is that money is um, a means of transporting value between people and across space and time. And sometimes, you know, asking a, a, a first principles question like that in the House of Commons turns a lot of heads because so often parliamentary debates are mixed up either in the minutia of a highly technical bill or in a bunch of partisan talking points that are incredibly boring and bake in a whole bunch of faulty assumptions from the beginning. Um, and if someone stands up and says, what is money? Everyone says, oh, wait a sec here. I hadn't thought of that. And I think half of parliament wouldn't have been able to answer the question, even though they walk around with it in their pockets every day. Well, I think it's a great deed for you to be asking that question in that space. I think it is one of the most underappreciated questions in the world. I think it's very important that we ask these foundational questions specifically in our forms of leadership, because how can we lead if we don't understand the foundations of things? So thank you for that. Um, thank you for taking that discussion. Uh, well, one of the, I think you're, you're right about that. And in politics, the most frustrating part, Robert, is that when politicians spend money, they, they often have no consideration for where it comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in a parliamentary committee a while back and um, they were, the government was proposing another $7 billion expenditure. And I, I simply said, where's the money coming from? <laughs> there were about nine senior public servants in our finance department who sat there dead silent uh, for about five minutes. And not a single one of them could explain where they were getting the money to fund the program. And because and he, they, they have all kinds of technical explanations about how the tax system uh, was going to deliver the money and how uh, what department was going to engineer it and which public servants would be involved in spending it and who would be receiving it. But none of them had even stopped for a second to consider that, that the money had come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, my poor little daughter is crying up there right now uh, <laughs> because she's paying the debt uh, that the uh, government is amassing with all of this spending. But they literally, Robert, it's, it's amazing. They literally don't even consider where money comes from. They act as though it is just theirs. And, um, you know, how can you perform a cost benefit analysis if you don't actually consider who pays the cost? Right. Uh, and of course, most recently, people have been paying it not just through their taxes, but through their uh, inflation. Okay, so given that definition of money, and clearly, I agree with you that it's a foundational technology to civilization, like we can't scale human cooperation without it. It's very important. Um, but to your point, politicians discussing how to spend money, you know, you said they're not doing cost benefit calculation, maybe they are actually because the cost is effectively zero <laughs> to them, uh, to them, to exactly, them. which leads to misallocation of capital, frivolous spending, etc. So what in your view is the proper role of government in the sphere of money? Well, I, I will answer that question directly. I just wanted to, to quote quickly, one of my favorite economists, uh, Thomas Sowell, 
who said the first rule of economics is scarcity. There's always um, more demand than there is supply. Uh, mm. People always want more than what there is to offer. And the first rule of politics is to to ignore the first rule of economics. Um, now, why is it that politicians can ignore the scarcity that is Im imposed on every single creature on Earth? Every creature on Earth lives with scarcity, whether it's a tiny microbe, um, whether it is a plant that is competing for soil and sun and uh, and uh, uh, carbon dioxide, whether it is a um, you know a uh, a creature in the forest fighting for food, every single creature on the earth except the politician must live with scarcity. Why? Because the politician has the ability to pass on that scarcity to someone else, and so he believes that he has an infinite supply of. Um, resources to expend and even if he expends them badly it is of no cost to him um, and that's how we end up with this uh, problem and um, so you mentioned what is the government's role in the issue of money well this is something i, I had to stumble on um, after years of frustration watching governments overspend see i always said to myself well overspending will be unpopular because politicians will end up passing it on in higher taxes and no one likes taxes so but what i found was that they instead of raising taxes uh, which would be bad they did something they they, they raised them indirectly by creating cash um, and imposing an inflation tax and what is surreptitious about a, uh, an inflation tax is that nobody realizes why they're paying the higher cost. So as more dollars flood the economy and raise the price of consumer goods, people blame their grocer for the higher food prices, the realtor for the higher house prices, the gas station for the higher gas prices, um, not knowing that it's actually the politician that has in, inflated the cost of all of those things. And so um, what I think um, politicians, and we need to depoliticize the central banks, and they need to have a single purpose, which is to protect the value of our money uh, by fighting inflation. Um, and in my, my view is that the lower the inflation, the better. Um, I don't believe that uh, provoking inflation stimulates economic growth. To the contrary, I think it actually shrinks the economy, the real economy of goods and services by screwing up price signals um, and uh, by punishing good economic behavior. And so the role of, of central banks in money, I believe, should be singularly to protect its value and keep inflation low monetary system has to respect the laws of nature monetary if you want to engineer a good network one of the what are the things that you have to protect it against you have to make sure that monetary system can measure value effectively you have to make sure that it can transfer value effectively you have to make sure that it can store value effectively but most importantly and this is something that i think a lot of people miss is most importantly, you have to make sure that users actually, that you actually retain users mm -hmm. because Metcalf's law works both ways. Mm -hmm. As the value of a network increases exponentially when users join the network linearly, if you begin to disenfranchise users and piss them off or do other means, mm -hmm. then as those users exit, the value of the network decreases exponentially. Yeah. 
So the most important thing you can do as an architect of a monetary system is, is protect it from sinking. Mm. <laughs> Understand that you are dealing with a, a network that obeys the law of Metcalfe's law. And the worst thing you can do is disenfranchise users mm. and, and motivate them to exit and use a different network. Remember, money can be anything. It doesn't need to be gold. It doesn't yeah. need to be. It's a shape-shifting thing. It's not bound by the constraints of mass. If It just so happened that gold emerged as the common monetary network or the foundation of the, com- of the modern monetary network because it's good at measuring value, because it's effective at transferring value, because it's good at storing value, all the things that you mentioned earlier and that you're mm-hmm. way better than me at explaining. But also because one, one thing that you, you miss is because its control authority is fair and preserved through the brutality, the brutal meritocracy that is nature and power projection, meaning, uh, you know, it's no secret that the, the most powerful militaries end up being the ones with the most gold, right? Mm. And if anyone becomes oppressive with their control authority over money, then users of that monetary system have the freedom to counterfail the control authority and, and take it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're an engineer and you want to prevent a monetary system from having severe loss of users or having any of these loss events where it can't measure or transfer, transfer or store value, then as an architect, you need to take responsibility of what you can control and prevent that system from arriving at a state where it comp- where it could lead to that loss event. What does that mean? You don't want your, like, you want to make sure that you don't do anything that would piss people off. For example, that you start surveilling them through their monetary mm-hmm. system or that you start, you know, v- denial of service attacking them through sanctions. Like obviously they're going to exit the the network. If you keep on doing that, you don't want to debase it because now you can't measure value effectively. Mm -hmm. Right. But there are tensions there. So that, so so the, the point here is the art, it's the architect's responsibility to, or the engineer's responsibility to um, act, to do what's in within their control to, to prevent a loss event, which means to prevent the monetary system from achieving a hazardous state. And so if the architects who have that control choose to then surveil or debase or do all these other things, then that's your fault for like, that's the root of the problem, right? Yeah. After you read history and if you see what's happening, you know, you will you will start thinking like, why do I hold fiat money? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah. So uh, it is what like, you know, the, the kind of show that you made, the what is money show, like the question of money. This is the, the kind of education that everyone gets to have right? only just, like, you know, uh, American, but everyone in the world, including Indonesia, needs to know. This question, what is money? Yeah, and I would throw in here that even Ray Dalio, right? A guy that's like the most successful hedge fund manager in history, 
understands history at a very deep level as is um, plain to see in his writing his books and his talking understands the value of gold even only recently did he start to understand the value of bitcoin like it took him, this guy that presumably in the world is one of the most knowledgeable people on markets money history all these things he only just now started to see it so like this isn't some educational campaign that like a few people have this education and a lot of people don't it's like 99.99% of humans have no idea what money is in my estimation if Ray Dalio doesn't know what money is I'm going to say that disqualifies like 99.99% of everyone else so this is a very it's like as a species we have we have discounted how important money is and we've tried mm -hmm. to manage it and play these games and create fiat and you know um all the, these these games we, we've talked about all this economic colonialism and slavery and all like we keep trying to game the system but it just blows up in our face every single time we covered the Jeff jeffersonian era we covered the lincoln era we covered um you know jefferson versus hamilton of course um uh, jackson's fight with the uh central bank and nicholas biddle um, we cover um, panics, you know, 1819 panic, etc. Uh, I even went back and covered the uh, beginning of central banking, which starts in France with a dude by the name of John Law. So that's how the book starts. Actually, the book starts before that. The book starts off with, do you want to be a, would you rather be a trader or a king, a merchant or a king? And I was just showing how some of the most famous crowns of Europe were actually financed by merchants and you know, war supplies, et cetera, et cetera, because the kings really didn't have any wealth. Um, and they were uh, financially illiterate and illiterate. Um, so they always had like money men around. So I was trying to show how like, there's always a money man around, <laughs> okay? Like in a kingdom, when it was a monarchy, the money man was running the show. When you mm -hmm. move to like, a republic style government there's a money man around calling the shots okay and financing everything and manipulating you into wars and pitting you against both sides and and, and financing both sides like i talked about before how wall street financed both sides of the war you know you had um the iso octane technology that was um operating over in um in germany under adolf hitler but the, the 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 chemical corporations like IG Farben etc and GE etc ITT were holding back patents and technologies from America and giving them to the Germans, right? But at the same time, they're operating out of America, and then like America would come down on them and say, "Hey, you got to stop doing this deal." So they'll set up a shell corporation and then run a deal through a shell corporation. So they're just like playing us the whole entire time. So I figure if I show people, you know, how you keep getting played by money men. You might understand that you should probably buy Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> See what I did? There? <laughs> yeah, no, that's honestly probably everything I'm trying to teach in a nutshell. In a way, it's like we have all these fictions about reality, like this company or that country or whatever, but it's always about the money, right? Or you could say property in general to be more general, but money is the most important form of property. Right. And, you know, I think money, it's basically been the means and ends of all war, really, right? Like clearly it costs money to fund war. 
you only go to war if you think you can get more money conquering the guy than you're going to spend conquering the guy. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. Right. So it's, it's a business driven decision. Correct. And then statism or government in general, it's just a business, right? right. They're just, they have a bottom line. They have revenues. Revenues are taxation and inflation. It's a business built on the profitability of coercion and violence. But it feels like if people could just see it that way, it's like every human organization is a business. Yeah. There's no government that has some higher moral aim or your best interest in mind. Like they are just individuals serving their own interests in a business. And you right. are the crop, actually. If you're the taxpayer, you're the crop for that, right. that business model. So gold has shortcomings of you know, divisibility, auditability, mm -hmm. and then as, you know, especially saleability across space. And then fiat, of course, has shortcomings of its you know, saleability across time, yeah. shortcomings of its auditability. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, just various shortcomings. And so the fact that we could have this, this situation, just this messy, opaque global market of, of, you know, kind of fractional reserve banking is just an inherent limitation of our money that, mm -hmm. that we, we don't have a money that checks off every single box of what we want money to do. Right. Each, each type of money just has, you know, enough of the boxes checked that it's workable as money, but it's not perfect as money. Yeah. You know, I, like the perfect form of money would be like if you could just mentally teleport gold to each other, and you know, or, or, or and, and never forget your, you know, your password. Or let's yes. say a Bitcoin, and you just you just say had your private key, you can never forget it, uh, and and you just have no limitations with it. And of course, we can never have perfect money, but yeah. you know, you, you can have you you can get closer and closer to the platonic ideal of what money is yes. with better technology, and so yes. you can. To the extent that Bitcoin continues to be successful, it's a it's a it's closer to the ideal money than gold was, assuming it can be you know it can hit some sort of critical mass in terms of liquidity and you know unstoppability. Right. Uh, you know, it kind of it gets out of its nation nation stage right. and into its you know you know basically if it, if it can avoid being killed in the womb. Yeah, yeah, well, that's <laughs> such a great point. It's almost like the perfect money would have the most frictions to involuntary exchange, whether it's inflation, confiscation, taxation, but minimal friction, minimal frictions to voluntary exchange. So if your country starts inflating your currency and you want to get out of there, you just, or they start being oppressive in whatever way, financially repressive in whatever way, you could just port that money out somewhere else. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CASA. CASA makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, CASA provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. 
Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Money doesn't just communicate about us. It serves a secondary function, is that it, how we spend money communicates value to the entire economy. So um, between buyer and seller, you know, what's the price of this thing? What is its value? And that answer is constantly being sent and received, digested, acted upon. It changes slightly. And so does the economy constantly, but also incrementally, gradually develop with each new signal. It's amazingly complex power at work here. And yet there's this constant, never-ending evolution and development. Um, and ultimately, it's the how, why, and what of what needs producing, where, and when. That's mm -hmm. the, the message that's being communicated. So money in itself then is like a language. Yes. And if you look at the history of fiat money, let's say that fiat money started in, it, it didn't, but let's just say for the sake of argument, it started in 1914 when the British, French and Germans um, abandoned the gold standard to print the money to pay for World War One, Or we could say that it started in 1971, whenever, it doesn't matter. Um, Nobody is in charge of fiat money. He, you know, central banker is to an extent, but you know he can't control all the all the technological, all the fintech that's right. going on, and all the evolutions. And and it, you know, I don't believe our fiat system was, it was ever planned. It's just constantly evolved. Yes, um, with billions of people contributing in each in their own different ways, simply by using it. Yeah. Um, you know, and buying it and selling it, and what you do with our money and it's it's the actions of of you, you know i don't believe the architects of fiat money re even realize that when a bank creates money when a bank issues debt money gets created right i don't think they realize that but they just adopted fiat money just to get out of a tight fiscal spot um you know extenuating circumstances at the time there's a war to fight and 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 it's constantly evolved ever since with the con you know, we've each, you and I have each evolved it just by buying and sending stuff. But somebody who's developed some clever little widget whereby you can just tap and go with your credit card or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You know, these are all ways that have evolved the fiat money system. But it wasn't planned. You know, there was there was a decision taken and various decisions have been taken, but it was it was still the development was still in many ways organic, but it was an organic development from unsound foundations let's put it like that and similarly nobody planned the language that we speak today mm -hmm. um you know it's very hard to plan and regulate a language and it's <laughs> many have tried over the years to uh, regulate the language they speak and they still do today you know if you use the wrong words you can get cancelled mm -hmm. uh, very easily and um even so, language is very hard to, to plan and regulate. And you might be banned from using certain words, but you can bet your bottom dollar that people are using those words. Um, oh, yeah. In private. When they're, you know, in private. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, so language has constantly 
evolved and developed according to the use and the needs of billions of people. And again, just by you and I having this conversation now, we are evolving the language in, a, in you know, a minuscule way, in the same way that if you and I were sending each other money, we'd be evolving the economy in a, mm -hmm. in a, in a way. Now, the English that we speak today, it's unrecognisable from the English of Chaucer, pretty unrecognisable from Shakespeare. It's, it's, it's not that similar to the language of Dickens. There are probably fewer words, but even though English is smaller than it was and different to what it was, it's now far more widely spoken than it ever was with Chaucer, Dickens or Shakespeare. Right. Um, it's, you know, the network has grown. Yes. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why the network has grown. Probably the main reason is the empire, mm -hmm. British Empire, you know, all over the world. Um, but then you could say, well, why didn't Spanish? Why hasn't Spanish got the same reach? And it's probably because the the English, the, the, the Spanish Empire was centered around South America and Portuguese, yeah. whereas English was much more higgledy piggledy all over the place. Right. And even though america wasn't part of the english empire the british empire you still spoke english um after we after you kicked us out bad decision <laughs> by the way <laughs> yeah i think it's important to you know understand like what is money right like mm -hmm. what is it right? i agree <laughs> uh, so um you know if we look back you know let's let's just start at the very beginning when when we as humans developed we lived in tribes of 100 to 150 people and whatever the local in that local area whatever the scarce commodity was you know it could have been salt or stones or shells and that's what we decided to store our value and that, that was our money mm -hmm. you know that's why we you know stored our value but the problem with that is that if one tribe would travel 10 or 20 miles and go try to do commerce or trade with another tribe and one was using stones another one was using salt there's too much friction in that mm -hmm. And so we as humans defaulted and we, we decided collectively 3,500 years ago to use like gold and silver as mm -hmm. our money. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've used for thousands of years until 1971. And what happened in 1971 was that Nixon took the US off the gold standard. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for 51 years now, our money's been backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. And so that, that system is failing. We, we see cracks in the system. Um, you know, when the government can just go out and print 30 to 40% more US dollars over a two year period, um, which causes prices to go up because the dollar is worthless. Um, I'm not saying worthless, I'm saying worth less, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, it causes pain to, yeah. to people. And so that system needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a you know, firm believer that Bitcoin is one of the solutions. To fixing that problem yeah yeah agreed with that um <clears throat> i've you know what agreed very clearly on the what is money question i think it is the most important question that people can mine for truth or answers really to understand what's going on in the world today so and i guess one of the main answers to that question that a lot of people don't understand is that it is a technology ultimately right it's a tool for solving a problem the problem being uh, the transference of value across space and time. Mm -hmm. What has driven this change? Like we, as you said, we started out with kind of prehistoric tools for, mm -hmm. for satisfying this function. We got to gold and silver. 
and now we've we've gone away from that. Yeah, so, so the transition, you know, like I said, we were gold and silver. Then in the 11th century, the Chinese invented paper money. Mm. So a thousand years ago, you know, the, that was the new technology. This paper money, it's mm-hmm. lightweight, it's more portable, it's more mm-hmm. divisible than this heavy bag of gold, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was new technology a thousand years ago. And then, you know, we, you know, and then it's, you know, 560 years ago, the Medici family started using what's called double entry bookkeeping, mm-hmm. um, which created the ledger, right? That's the ledger technology. And so ledger technology we've been using for 500 years now. And that's what created the banks. Yeah. Banks are ledgers, they're just big ledgers. Yeah. And that's what created the bond market. Right. And so all Bitcoin is, is the same ledger technology that we've been using for 500 years with a little added twist to it. And the added twist is that it's distributed and it's updated every 10 minutes. So it's distributed around the world to 10,000 nodes and it's updated every 10 minutes. So it's a decentralized ledger that uses the power of the internet. And so we're not inventing anything new, it's Mm -hmm. just the same ledger. So I basically call this like triple entry bookkeeping Mm. instead of double entry, which is basic ledger, it's triple entry because it's being updated every 10 minutes and blasted around the world. Mm -hmm. So we're all using one universal ledger. And so that's the new technology. You know, it's, it's not, um, you know, it's not anything like super special where we're inventing like fire, Mm -hmm. but it is, you know, a very important milestone for humankind because it's going to allow us to, you know, get off, you know, fiat money, money that's not backed by anything. And we go to a hard money standard like we have been on for 3,500 years. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a real important realization too, I think, when you're mining this question is that hard money is the norm. The past 100 some odd years is the anomaly, really. Mm -hmm. Whereas we just, due to recency bias, I guess, we think this is the norm. Right. Um, And it's just not the case. Um, And so the, the... Double entry and debits, credits. The third entry is basically the timestamp, right? The, the yeah, exactly. Universal. And the distributed nature of it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the importance of that is single source of truth, effectively, right? Right. Yeah. You have one universal ledger. You don't like, if you have a JP Morgan account and I have a Bank of America account, if I move money, or, you know, if I send you money, your JP Morgan, my Bank of America, I have to reconcile. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to get together and, and balance the books, mm-hmm. right? With Bitcoin, it's one universal ledger. Mm-hmm. There's no balancing. There's no reconciliation that's yeah. needed. It's just I'm transferring, you know, value to you. Yes. It just happens instantly. So there's one, like you said, one universal form of truth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so simple, yet implications so profound. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of something just automatically auditing itself reconciling itself maybe it's not fire don't tell michael saylor that though (laughs) (laughs) but it is a it's a simple yet tremendous innovation right for human for scaling human cooperation right it's very disruptive too yeah i mean if you think about it you know we've been using banks for 500 years Mm. we've been using accountants Mm -hmm. and and, you know audit firms for hundreds of years right Mm -hmm. i mean you know, their jobs are in jeopardy if this, yeah. you know, grows to be, you know, at scale. Yeah. So it's going to be very disruptive. One thing that really jumps out to me here is there seems to be this deep connection between the corruptibility of money itself, right? The fact that it can be debased, centrally planned, et cetera, 
and warfare, right? Like it's a, and that was the excuse for the first, uh, I was at the first national bank in the U S it's because we're going to war, right? We needed a central bank to fund the war effectively. Right. So we've, I mean, when you start to look at humanity through that lens that we've been engaged in these acts of conflict with one another, but it's always critically tied to the money itself, like the control of the money. That's been kind of the saga we've been dealing with, right? Throughout it, it, all human least, history. You know, you could certainly argue all wars, but mm. more specifically, Napoleonic wars onwards. Yes. And that includes all the proxy wars. Mm. That includes all the regime change wars in Nicaragua, Venezuela, blah, mm. blah, blah, Syria, um, yeah. Alberta basically everywhere mm -hmm. to protect the quote unquote petrodollar. Um, but it, it is, it's the pathway that man becomes corrupt is mm -hmm. certainly money. Right. And there are certainly just wars where I'm invading you trying to take your women, children and wheat, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It is just for you to rebel and fight back. Mm -hmm. That, that I have absolutely no problem with because it's, it's one-on-one -on -one conflict versus conflict, not, the folks that are wielding the power of the money are never the ones actually going to war. And right. they convince millions to die, millions to starve. There's genocide at every turn yeah. under the, the guise of protecting their interests. Right. World War One and World War II were forcibly started on us. It had almost nothing to do with, with Germany, specifically World War One, And then Hitler's rise to power was sponsored by them and right. funded by them, right. even funded by the United States yeah. in part. Yeah. Um, and he's born out of the ashes of the Weimar hyperinflation, which I think is always a key point. Like if fiat currency did not exist, Hitler would not have risen to power. Right. And why did the Weimar Republic even suffer so much? Right. Yeah. They were pulverized on purpose by the money changers. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. They, they hyperinflated due to their massive debts that they owed in, in reparations after mm -hmm. World War One. What happened after World War Two? Did the U.S. ever get paid back? No. So... It, it, all of this stuff was forced on the German people. And then that's, it's a natural human response to stress and pressure. It's very similar to what the COVID hysteria, yes. right? Or Trump derangement syndrome, all, all right. the stuff that's forced on us. Um, you, you're only going to react in, in a few ways and you want to find a common enemy. Yeah. And that sort of, you know, social engineering is not new, right? Yeah. They're really good at it now. I.e. look at all the, COVID responses, right. they were less good at it back in, in the Weimar Republic. But yeah. that gave rise to the German people accepting essentially the birth of, of the Nazi party and Hitler and right. signing up for it, even, they, even though they didn't realize what they were signing up for. Yeah. They just want to change. 